Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 265. Today is Sunday the 18th of February 2018. And this interview is with Carla Johnson, who's an author multiple times over, speaker and expert in storytelling, content marketing strategies and brand building, who's been working with such blue chip companies such as American Express, Dell, Motorola, VMware, as well as the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Carla runs the Type A Communications Consultancy, and is also chair of the board of advisors for business to business for the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers. In this conversation, we discuss the challenges of making content marketing and brand come alive within organizations, the gap between promise makers and promise keepers, as well as some keen insights on how to improve brand storytelling and bring empathy into the workplace. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So hello and welcome to the Minter Dialogue, Carla Johnson. Thanks for coming on the show, Carla. You and I came across each other in one of those modern digital manners, which is we both got involved in an event with our dear friend Jason Miller, an event, I should say, an experience of a digital content experience online. And then I I got a little view of you and I I felt like I needed to have you on the show. So thanks for coming on the show, Carla. Thank you so much, Minter. I'm delighted to be here. So um, a little bit about yourself. You are chair of the board of advisors for the business-to-business side of the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers, and you run your consultancy, the Type A Communications, and I was wondering what Type A meant. I didn't see that come out. Tell us about yourself, and uh, and what's your mindset these days? You know, Type A came about when I started my company. I, I started in 2001, and I was looking for something that described the need that companies have to get great work done, but in a quick turnaround because I don't think brilliant work always has to take months and months and a huge budget. So it's that type A look at how do we look at something, get it done quickly and do it well. And it also is a little bit of a reflection on my own personality. And uh, you know what I'm, what I'm looking into these days is how I can help brands trigger anticipation for whatever it is. We were talking a little earlier about, you know, employees how can brands trigger anticipation so when employees wake up in the morning, they're excited to walk through that door? You know, can't get wait, can't wait to get out of bed, can't wait to get to the office and do great work. How do we trigger anticipation for audiences you know, that they can't wait to see what's around the corner that we're going to do next? And looking at that space from right now between companies that say they want innovation and more and better ideas, and then these employees who actually have to get the work done. So that can be, um, a lot of people think, well, innovation, that's inspiring. There's so many opportunities and things that we can do, but it's really a, a, a nebulous process. And when employees hear, we need more innovation, it's, it's a big burden on them because they already have a big workload. But I'm looking into how the most innovative teams in the world surface great ideas consistently and turn them into what turns out to be these exponential outcomes for businesses, whether it's revenue, whether it's awareness, some other kind of way to look at how the outcome can be measured in ways that people don't expect coming around the corner. It makes me think of, Carla, 
the expression we use at the London too, which is mind the gap. And, and you sort of mentioned this notion of innovation on one hand, the ideal, the ambition, and then the, the gap between that word, that idea, and the people who actually have to execute, which are done by the, the employees. And somehow it's about minding that gap. You know, that's absolutely true. And when we look at what happens between the words that come out of mouths of executives about innovation and what happens when those words come into an employee's ears is that right away we start to say, you know, I could never be a L'Oreal or I could never be a Lego. I could never be a GE. I could never bring innovation forward in ways that these other brands who are known for it do it, especially on a consistent basis. So I call that brand detachment disorder. It's this psychological thing that goes on in our mind that when we hear another brand and the great work that we do, that we start to detach because we make all of these excuses about why we could never be as innovative as they are. And really, it's looking at what process can we use to replicate what they do, but have it be relevant in our own world. Yeah, well, that, that, there's so many things you bring up. Um, I want to maybe unpack and think about. But one of them is this notion of uh, the gap between uh, what words are coming out and the execution. And so there's, I, I get this feeling that a lot of CEOs or executive teams are, are, have got the plot as far as the wording. They've every word, every every board is now talking about agility innovation, uh, you know, fail fast, uh, try harder and all this. And yet the employees at the end of the line are are seeing this. And I just see a lot of eye rolling, hand wringing and a feeling of, you know, powerlessness. You know, and I think it goes back to, again, employees and how it is that we interact and engage with them. So when we think about innovation in general in companies, it's generally a, a product group, a research group that's penned off. They have their own real estate within an organization. You know, sometimes in the newer, trendier startup kind of companies, it's a blast um, work area. And you see people, uh, they have different rules for that work group than you do for regular employees. So how can we bring that idea of everything that needs to be done and employees want to done out to the whole population of a company. So think of innovation and new ideas as something that everybody brings to the table, not something that you have to have a PhD to do. You know, you're a trained intellectual in a certain area or discipline, or that you're the one who's tapped because you're in this real estate, whether it's physical or psychological, that that's your responsibility. Because a lot of times when I talk to companies and and particularly marketers about doing work that's more innovative and bringing innovation into the company, they say, you know, that's really not my job, but it is everybody's job. It's just that we have to look at how we can make the process more familiar and predictable so that people feel comfortable and confident with it, but it doesn't have to compete with the demands and priorities of your everyday work. That is so true. Um, You know, it's like you have the sort of the biggest, like the long term and the short term and but the challenge, of course, most of the time is we end up spending our time being hyper focused on the on the short term issues. So in your in your book, exactly your book, um, which I only managed to partially read, <laughs> Carla, experiences um, which you co-wrote. Uh, I loved it. Um, the the notion of experiences and so the idea of moving from uh, personalization, which is one of the the sort of the one of the eras of marketing 
and I can't remember the one before that. But anyway, we're now into the content, probably. But you, you write um, content strategies that turn great brand stories into exceptional customer experiences. So that's something that you are helping companies to do. The question I have is, how does how do you make that happen? What are the things that allow for that to work? And what hampers uh, that kind of journey that you're trying to make happen within companies? So the, the one thing that I find that is so important in the ability to take a content strategy and, and use it to turn the stories into the experiences is that you have to start with understanding what is it that you're wanting to accomplish with that story and what is it that your company does different, unique, and in a way that no other company can. So from the perspective of purpose that you have done so well at Redken and in your work that you do is looking at how do we start with that foundation of a brand and that story and then how do we make it come to life through that experience? So when we think of customer experiences, many times what companies think of is um, customer service reps. You know, it's call centers. It's it's the catch net of a company that shows up when an experience hasn't gone right. So if we look at what's that brand story that's based on purpose, and then now how do we start to execute that across the organization in ways that what um, IT does bubbles up to that brand story, what marketing does and says bubbles up to that story, what everybody within an organization actually delivers bubbles up to that story. Because it's one thing for marketing and sales to tell a story, to talk about things from a branding perspective. And because they're at the front of the, they're at the head of the comet, so to speak. And they're the ones out who are making tremendous promises to audiences. Mm -hmm. What we have to look at is who are those promise keepers within an organization and what happens when a potential customer reaches out and talks to somebody who isn't in marketing and sales? How well do they know that story? How well do they know the meaning of the brand? And how do they actually make that come to life? So that starts to impact everything that we do. You know, from marketing, it helps us understand what choices that we make. As we look at the customer journey, it helps us say, yes to fewer things and do them better and no to a lot more things that don't need to be done that that um, start to fragment our attention our resources you know our time and, and budgets and things so looking at that now if we're going to look at how we start to craft and design that experience it has to come from the foundation of what story are we telling and then how do we bring that to life so if you look at a company like nike who's looking at health and fitness from all those perspectives that's a company that can bring that experience to life through something like the fitness apps that they offer. So you don't always have to be a paying customer to experience a brand. You can be a brand that understands when I create the experience, I bring more people in and that actually casts the net wider to understand who believes what I believe, whether you're a customer, a stakeholder, um, a potential employee, and how do you bring people into the funnel when you get to that um, particular point of the relationship of closing, you know, closing a transaction, whether it's becoming a customer, whether it's hiring them as an employee, but it, it makes people have a clear understanding and really a North star for what it is that they say yes and no to. I, I really liked in, in your book, um, so it's called, just to be exact, The Experience is the Seventh Era of Marketing, which you wrote with Robert Rose, um, this notion of promise makers and promise keepers. And the thing that sort of underlies the promise keepers challenge is this notion of trust. 
because they keep on promising the world and and they the, the promises don't seem to show up and to be fair a lot of those promises are due to or are are, are should be responsible the responsibility of the sales and marketing who are the two main promise makers as you, as you identify them but then you have this issue of trust and and that that they they rely on the rest of the organization to pull it through yeah, absolutely. And I think when we look at this relationship between the promise makers and the promise keepers, we have within organizations, there's so many times when we hear people say, oh, are you kidding me? That's another promise that marketing made or sales made that we can't deliver because all they want to do is get the leads, you know, try and close the deal. But we live in a real world where work has to be delivered. So it's a huge amount of trust, both from the perspective of can marketers and salespeople trust the rest of the organization to deliver what they promised? And then this ability of promise keepers to trust what's being done at the front end of the relationship. And then what happens when customers are going, wait a minute, I was promised this and that's not what being delivered. So trust is such a huge foundational element in that whole cycle of relationships. When, when you talked about purpose, so I kind of wanted to ask this question because it is my observation that many companies lack purpose. So A, do you agree? And B, if they don't have purpose, how then do you create this kind of more powerful storytelling if that's missing in the first place? You know, I, I agree. I think it's a fraction of companies who begin their work from the position of purpose. And the interesting thing is, is that it's so foundational to anything that a company does. So every company, it doesn't matter how old or young it is, was started for a reason. You know, the people who started it felt they could do something better than what was in the market before. And they believed it with their whole heart. And that's why they took that risk as an entrepreneur to go out and start a company. But what happens in those day-to-day -day activities of business is that we forget that because we have our heads down and we're trying to get work out the door and meet deadlines and all of those things. But when we're able to articulate that purpose, keep it front and center in front of our customers, in front of our employees, most importantly, that's when we're able to stand out in ways that nobody else can copy, not our competitors, not other people in the market. And it's something that we can truly own and differentiate. So that's what I talk about when I talk about storytelling as a, as a foundation is what is it that we use as our purpose behind the stories that we tell and how is it that we differentiate ourselves. And when we look at one of the biggest struggles within organizations, it's getting buy-in for ideas to move them forward. So if we tell stories internally to our employees when we have new ideas and tell those stories from the perspective of this supports our purpose because it makes it much easier to filter things. And when employees are sitting there going, well, I think it's a good idea, but I'm not really sure. What should we do? It removes all of the inefficiency of hesitation and lack of focus. So I think that there are so few companies who really understand it because what is happening is that they say, that's one of those really nice feel-good things and it's kind of squishy. But there's a tremendous amount of data and research that we're seeing that shows the financial performance of companies based on purpose, you know, with that at their, as their foundation, and other companies in industries. And we're seeing those companies that are based on purpose have so much better financial performance. They have happier employer, employees. They have happier customers. They have customers that they're able to retain for a longer period of time. 
So while companies say, you know what, sounds good, but I need something real to, you know, to hang my hat on, this is the real thing to hang your hat on because this is the only way to stand out and differentiate yourself. You know, as a CEO, you want to do more, better, and at less cost. That starts all from the foundation of purpose within an organization. Well, um, with uh, my chum, Sam Phelps, we were mentioning him just before, uh, who writes about the purple goldfish, this notion of uh, firms of endearment. These are firms that have purpose and that have been shown to have a a higher stock performance than, than companies that don't have it. And yet, Carla, the crazy thing is, it doesn't seem like that message has gotten through to the folks in private equity, venture capital and Wall Street. I absolutely agree. And I think part of the reason is because it's different. And humans are creatures of habit. So when we look at storytelling within an organization, that's one thing that is so important is the ability to tell stories that help new ideas feel safe and less risky. Because if you look at you know investors within an organization, that's what they're all about is managing risk. Mm-hmm. But looking at how we can tell that story from a perspective of safety and less risk, And start to show how if we stay with the long established ways of doing business, which is not based on purpose, that that's actually the riskier thing to do. So that's part of what we need to learn is as we tell our story as a company, we also have to be able to talk about how it is that we need to change and evolve in a way that feels natural, that people can feel good about supporting. And so people say yes to some of these things that they normally say no to. So I'm just writing a blog post, so I haven't published it yet because I'm sort of still germinating on it. But I always used to say it's about either being first, best, or only uh, when you're doing a product. And that seemed like a really great mantra. But listening to you and, and, and something I've been sort of thinking about more and more is being different, which of course is a little bit within the only area. But being quirky, being different, being true to your authentic roots uh, then that seems to be the more fulfilling, but it is more complicated to be, you know, if you're going to be considered the the weird one, the the different one. Yeah, you know, and as we go back to talking about music and how we met through Jason Miller, one of the things I heard him say in one of his speeches is something from Steven Tyler, and Steven said, "If it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing." And I think <laughs> when we get into that that passion of a brand and how we bring an experience to life is that when we go into it wholeheartedly, that's when we really make the difference. So it can feel like um, you're really putting yourself out there, but what happens is that you don't just build rabid fans, you build this amazingly hungry base of employees who deliver what's going on because they're so excited about it and they love it. I mean, you look at the number of people who wanna work for Southwest Airlines, Hmm. and I heard a statistic once that it's actually harder to get a job at Southwest Airlines than it is to get admitted into Harvard University. And I think that's an example of a brand who understands that really, really well. Oh boy, is that true. Um, so we're, we're talking storytelling and uh, and certain brands seem to have a voice. When you're working with your clients or and from your observations, how does one instill a voice in a brand? And I'm thinking specifically like South by Southwest, who has managed to sort of galvanize such an employee hotbed of influencers and participants in the social story. How do you go about creating a voice? Because it's a very abstract concept. This is the way we should speak. You know, and the, the, it is very abstract, but the brands that do it the best 
understand that managing their brand voice is just as important as managing the products and the services that they sell. Because it's that consistency of a brand and how it shows up that comes through the voice primarily that is so powerful. And again, going back to building that trust. If you had a personal friend who always sounded differently, talked differently, used a different vocabulary, a different tone of voice, every time you talk to them, you'd think there's something off base about them, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as, a, as an interaction, the same thing happens psychologically when we do that as brands. So when we go back to that, that mind the gap between the promise keepers and the promise makers, there often is a huge gap between the voice of a brand that you hear from marketing and what you hear from sales and what you hear from all of the rest of the organization. And that those are all the little things that add up to how much a person trusts a brand. Hmm. So making great content, having great stories to tell, making a beautiful video, writing this really useful, as uh, Jay Bear would say, utile or have great utility in the content you're creating is great, but it seems like one of the challenges that's, especially with new algorithms being what they are, is getting the word out there. So how how do you go about <laughs> this distribution challenge? What, what sort of tips and tricks might you have up your sleeve, Carla, about helping get those stories out there? Well, you know, I think one of the most important ones is that you look at the content that you create and you look at the purpose behind it. So Robert and I, in our book, Experiences, we talk about the four different archetypes of content. So are you looking to educate somebody? Are you looking to promote something that you have? Are you looking to entertain people? Look at that purpose behind and then take that archetype so you understand the purpose of your company and how that fits into the purpose of any content that you're developing, whether it's um, traditional marketing kind of content, content marketing, or is this content for um, a stakeholder or a, you know a, um, an investor? Is it content for the PR and media? Looking at what that is and how it is that it comes to life. Because once you start with that, then a lot of other things start to naturally fall into line. How you, what you write about, um, how you write about, what words you use, and that starts to fit into you know search and what is it that your audience is searching for? How do they look for content? Where do they show up so you can be where they show up? So it's something that really focuses the attention and makes everything else after the fact much easier and a lot more efficient and actually a lot more fun to do. One of the, the um, this idea of voice, when I was at Redken, we had a very specific way of actually educating uh, because we we're talking about educating hairdressers. And so it's one of where, you know, by definition, we had a utility or one of the archetypes in spades and then we had issues or, or concepts of, of language that were specific. And we, we used specific language to describe parts of the hair, parts of the scalp. And that became part of our gestalt and, and the way we harmonized our communication. It seemed obvious. But for other brands, it's, it seems so much harder. You know, if you're working at a telco, what is your channel? What is, do you think you're more credible in being more entertaining or more educational or, you know, of course you have to educate at some level, but entertainment is, is a harder one for many brands to grasp, especially if you're in a very serious area like banking. Oh, absolutely. But I think what you do in these areas, because I primarily work with B2B companies and a lot of 
heavily engineering driven or industrial kind of manufacturing companies. And you have this ability to bring forth a personality in ways that are relevant for your audience. So what may work for a company like Johnny Cupcakes, which is you know consumer shirt consumer company that sells t-shirts about cupcakes is wonderful and entertaining but what is entertaining for an engineering company can be completely different so it's not that we look at something on the scale of what's funny and entertaining and what's technical and and detailed and say it applies to everybody but it's looking at your own audience and and what may be lively and funny to a group of engineers can just sound like really boring things to people outside of that industry, but it works for them because they know that audience. So particularly in B2B and as you get further along in the buying cycle and and as companies investigate to make sure they're doing their due diligence to buy a a product, we have that need for technical information. But that doesn't mean that it has to be so dry and so boring that even the engineers reading it don't want to read it. So if you look at um, Indium, it's a company that sells soldering and, and electronic kind of equipment to engineers. They have a blog called From One Engineer to Another. And they answer oodles. I mean, they probably have thousands of answers to questions that engineers have. But it's still interesting. You know, it's interesting to those engineers who have those, those problems. Mm. It's still fun because it's a quick, easy, efficient way to get their their questions answered. So some of those things about how do you bring that forward has to be, we have to look at it in the context of who is our audience and what makes sense to them. Yeah. And even if we are talking about, let's say engineers, which, you know, for the creative amongst us might be, you know, very dry. These are people who were kids before yeah. and we should bring out the kid in each of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to tail into one last area, Carla, which is about empathy, because I noticed you did uh, the IDEO U online uh, course. And and one of the things that they promise is helping you to become more, have more immersive empathy or learn what it, it means to walk in someone else's shoes. And this is a topic that I suppose at some level, if you're not talking about it, you're off, you know, you're off the charts. Yet, the challenge is, even within the human beings that are working in organizations and forget technology, creating, driving, making people feel empathic, because it is a skill one can learn, is a very hard task to do, especially when you have short-term challenges, stresses at home and everything else, and, and now i got to be empathic. Oh, la, 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 la. So <laughs> I was wondering, what, 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 what did you take away from that class course and and what would be your thoughts as to how to help an organization create, allow for more empathy amongst its employees? You know, the nice thing about empathy, like you said, is that it is a skill that people can learn. Anybody can learn empathy. And it can be as simple as something as when you set up meetings for teams internal, only have them go 25 minutes, don't go 30 Because when you have meetings go 30 minutes and they go back to back to another meeting, you understand that there's no cushion in there. There is no gap. So people are either leaving your meeting early or they're going to the next one late. So there's so many really great opportunities to practice empathy in ways that help us do better work that we don't even think of. And the interesting thing about the IDEO program is that it was a it was a nice refresher on work that I did early in my career with architects. So when I worked with architects, when they start a project, the first thing that they do is they understand, okay, who is this for? What matters to them? 
you know, how does this fit into a bigger context? If this is a, you know, a company with multiple locations, how does it fit into the bigger picture? But then they take time and they actually go out and they experience what someone who uses that building would experience. So in particular, I worked with healthcare architects and those who design children's hospitals. So the designers would spend time in children's hospitals. They would, when they drove onto the property, they would look at this from the child's perspective. So maybe one would drive and one would sit real low in the car and look around and say, you know, what would a child see when they're coming here and they've been told they need to have more tests done? You know, looking from that perspective of I'm scared, I'm little, everything is big, I don't know what's going on. You know, how do you make that whole environment more welcoming from the time they interact with the brand all the way through the process? And so they would sleep in the beds in the hospital that children would sleep in. You know, they'd be down on their knees and walking around and looking at things from that perspective. And so they understood that it's not just about the quality of clinical care that you deliver to a patient in this in this situation, it was children, but it's also that experience that you bring to life. So health care organizations have amazing stories about the care that they deliver. But back to how do you bring that story into life through an experience? Now we see children's hospitals in particular. Um, they're places that look like they're full of play or fun or things that make them feel emotionally safe and familiar when they go into a treatment facility. And that's why we saw, particularly in the 1990s, human-centered design and patient-centered design in healthcare is because there's a tremendous amount of empathy with understanding what it is that the patient experiences and what it is that's actually delivered as a product. And if you look at that, the same applies for any work that we do, whether we're a marketer, whether we're an IT person, you know, whether we're an administrative assistant and just looking at how can we make the work that we do matter more and have a bigger impact wherever it is that we work. So many things, Carla. Um, first of all, why is it that we only create that kind of an environment for children's hospitals? I was in a retirement home just a couple of days ago with my mother-in-law, 89 years old, and at times she is as childlike as, as any you know four-year-old, and, and yet she's in an environment that I didn't see a single photograph or painting or goofy clown on the wall anywhere. And so it brings me to this point, which is so much design, uh, when I see architects and interior design, I can only shake my head as, what were they thinking when they put the urinal so close to the door? Or, <laughs> or you know, so, um, it was, you know, so, or they, they make this tap that's just really attractive, but every time you turn the tap on, it makes the automatic um, air go on. So that the air then rushes down and spews the water coming out of the tap all over you. What were they thinking? And so you know, <laughs> and I, those are the things that drive us over the edge, don't they? Because we can tell that the designer didn't have empathy for the user. So it's probably someone who was great at sales, sold the product. Okay, now somebody had to deliver it. So we go back to that trust cycle. And they're saying, okay, well, I don't have time just, you know, I don't have time in the timeline or time in the budget to go out and spend learning about the people who will actually use this facility. Or maybe they just didn't care. I mean, I think there's a lot of apathy instead of empathy in the work that comes out of a lot of companies. And you see, you see what that makes you feel like as a user. And when we talk about, you know, healthcare facilities and the emotional part that comes out of it, I think it's in 
Denmark, I believe it's in a Scandinavian country, where they're starting to put adult care centers right next to daycare centers for children. Sure. Because sure. they find it does such um, an amazing emotional, creates an amazing emotional connection. Because here are people who have all the time in the world to listen to the wonderful stories that children have to tell. And here's also a group who appreciates and, and loves that and feels like there's so much life in the world rather than being in a place where, like you said, there's few pictures and not a lot of, you know, energy and interaction. And they see it's really good for both groups of people. So I, I'm ever hopeful. I'm an optimist. And yet I would say, even though, I, let's say, and I should caution or, or qualify that I studied women's studies at university. And I do feel that some people, a certain segment of society has a lot more empathy instilled or naturally coming out than a lot of others and the other one would come with brackets that look like ceos men who are looking at performance i i tend to agree with that and i think there's there's a blessings and drawbacks from both genders and i think it just goes back to show why we need diverse teams why it's so important because there's there's a lot that's really good with the way that men approach business but there's so much that's really good, like you said, the empathy and the nurturing the relationships that tends to come from a women's point of view. And you see the companies that are the most successful are those that are willing to put together diverse teams of people, diverse management, and having women higher in the ranks. And in fact, we see some of the financial performance of companies that have women higher in the ranks and how they do a much better job at financial performance. And I think when that happens, it's a reflection of a company that's willing to be more open to who they bring into teams. So it is women, but it's also people from other cultures and ethnicities. And the more you're open to new ideas, the more ideas that come to the table. And also, I mean, just from a business perspective, women are at least 50% of your consumer base. And if you start to look at the influence on purchase decisions women i think are something like 85 or 90 percent of it so it just seems ridiculous to have a company that's making decisions and putting out products and services that doesn't have any contact to the person who has the biggest influence on buying a product and i shan't bring up l'oreal um <laughs> <laughs> so i think we've kind of solved the world's problems here um recapping uh a make promises you can keep uh, instill purpose from the beginning, and then thirdly, have diversity. I would absolutely agree. Love it. Carla, thanks for coming on the show. Can you um, tell us what's the best way for anyone who enjoyed this and li enjoyed listening to you, uh, how would be the best way to get in touch with you or follow you? Uh, of course, I'll put all the links about buying your books in the show notes, but anything else, what would you like? You know, I'm always available on email, and my email is parla at typeacommunications.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter. Beautiful. I should put that in the show notes. Have a lovely week, Carla. Stay in touch and um, catch you soon. I was delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the grave.
convictions that you mention in your lack of self-security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas. Hold me tightly, slowly we would paint a lover's portrait with all your. welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.